Uh, let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us uh, through the Son and opened our eyes by your Spirit to see your glory in Jesus' face. Help us as we continue to think about your revelation of yourself to understand and to welcome uh, your commitment to us, God, Father, Son and Spirit, in saving us. Help me now to teach your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand and receive with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the creed... My fault again. It's all right. I think... This is almost, you know, if I do this in another week in a row, it'll become a tradition and we'll never be able to change it. Hey, good. Uh, right. Uh, the Creed, as you see there, says we worship the Holy Spirit with the Father and the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and with the Father and the Son he's worshipped and glorified. But it actually doesn't seem that we do, does it? Or at least not in the same way. We don't worship the Spirit in the same way we publicly worship the Father and the Son. I mean, when did you last hear a prayer addressed to the Spirit or a hymn sung praising the Spirit? Or when have you been blessed in the Spirit's name alone? And even if you have heard such things, it is actually quite uncommon, isn't it? And in this, in having our public prayers and hymns addressed to the Father and the Son but not the Spirit, well, we're just following the practice and example of the New Testament. When we read the New Testament, it's apparent that believers seem to relate to the Spirit differently to the way they relate to the Father and the Son. So, for example, there's no prayer to the, New, to the Spirit in the New Testament. Prayer is typically made to the Father or to God, meaning the Father, as you would expect where the Lord Jesus taught his followers to pray, our Father. And so, for example, in Acts 4, the apostles pray to God, the sovereign Lord, meaning the Father whose holy servant, verse 27, is Jesus. Or Paul, for example, in Ephesians 3, writes that he bows his knee in prayer to the Father. Yes, there are some prayers addressed to the Lord Jesus, such as Stephen's, as he's dying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, or the Apostle Paul, as he beseeches the Lord to relieve him of his thorn in the flesh. But there are no prayers to the Spirit. And in the greetings at the beginning of the New Testament letters, well, the Father and the Son are often joined, grace, you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Spirit's not joined in those greetings. Our thanks is given to the God the Father and the Lord Jesus can be associated with that, but the Spirit is not in those thanksgivings. In the blessings at the end of the letters, only once is the Spirit included, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which you all know, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, but that's only once, typically, those final blessings speak of the grace of Christ only or they speak of God to him who is able to keep you from falling to the only God or they're given in the name of the Father and the Son. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, in the book of Revelation, there are hymns sung to God, but they're sung to God and the Lamb and not to the Spirit. So it would seem in the New Testament, the Spirit is not worshipped in the same way as the Father and the Son. Now, does that mean that we need to develop our worship beyond that of the New Testament if we're to be true to our confession? Or does the difference mean that the Spirit is not really God? Or not God in the same sense as the Father and the Son? For only God is to be worshipped and the absence of worship suggests the Spirit is less than God, perhaps an exalted creature or even a, a force. And, and that impression can actually be increased when we see how often the activity of the Spirit is spoken of using physical metaphors. As you heard in Isaiah, the Spirit is spoken of as being poured out. In Acts, we're told the Spirit fills people. And yes, we can be baptised in or with the Spirit. And those sound impersonal, don't they? as if the Spirit's a kind of thing or a spiritual substance. So before we answer the question of how we worship the Holy Spirit, let's first confirm that the Spirit is to be worshipped by looking at the evidence that the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity. Then we'll think about how the Spirit's to be worshipped, both in public prayer and praise, but also, more importantly, in the worship of the whole of our lives so that we can be confident we are honouring God the Spirit when we conform our practice to, the, to that of the New Testament. Oh, and yes, and that we are being directed by the Spirit in our response to the one God, Father, Son and Spirit, saving us through the Son who gives the Spirit to his people. That is, that we are truly living as those in whom the Spirit of the Son dwells. So, firstly, the Spirit deserves to be worshipped with the Father and the Son because he is God, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is God. The very name, Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, suggests that the Spirit is God. God's Spirit will not be less than God. While distinct and not all the God there is, the Spirit of God must always be on the creator side of the creator-creature divide. And this is clear in a number of places in the New Testament. So as you can see, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of God who has such intimate knowledge of God that no one else has cannot be less than God. No creature has such knowledge. And yes, the Spirit can be blasphemes. Jesus warns the Pharisees of that in Mark 3. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. They are in danger of blaspheming because they are attributing what was clearly the work of God, the casting out of demons, to the evil one. They are associating God with evil in associating the work of the Spirit with the devil. You can blaspheme the Spirit. And we are told in Acts that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. This is Ananias and Sapphira. 
Peter says that they have lied, verse 5, to the Holy Spirit. Then verse, sorry, verse 3. Then verse 4, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. To lie to the Spirit is to lie to God. And we see in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says that his disciples are to baptise those who believe in the name, the one name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see that God is one. And this is the saving revelation of the one God, Father, Son and Spirit. The Spirit's God. And the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Now let's remember what we mean by person when we speak of the three persons of the Trinity. Person here is not the same as personality. We have, you know, we speak of people as personalities, but personality can change over time and God doesn't change. And we're not using the the word person in the modern sense of a person as a separate individual, a separate individual consciousness. Person in its use in the creed has more of a legal sense, speaking of one who has agency and relationship and so is responsible and known in action and relating. And that's actually what we see. The spirit is active in relationship with believers and the spirit is active in relationship within God, with the Father and the Son, while never being separate from them. So the spirit's a person in both those contexts. And let's look at both in turn. In relation to us, we see that the spirit is a willing, speaking, acting agent. In Acts, it's the spirit who directs the spread of the gospel. The spirit speaks to Philip and to Peter. Oh, the spirit directs the work of spreading the gospel, initiating Paul's missionary journey. The Holy Spirit said, we read in Acts 13, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And they are sent out, verse 4, by the Spirit. And the Spirit continues to guide the apostles' movements, forbidding Paul to speak the word in Asia in preparation for Paul's call to Europe, to Macedonia. See there, verse 6, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And, of course, the Spirit can be grieved, that is, wronged in relationship, as we heard last week, Ephesians 4, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And our Lord talks of the Spirit as the other comforter or helper, as you heard in John, who will continue to do in the lives of the disciples what he has done while on earth. I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper or comforter to be with you forever. And as the other helper, John fourteen twenty six, the Spirit teaches. He will teach you all things just as Jesus taught. And yes, John fifteen twenty six, the Spirit will bear witness just as Jesus bore witness to what he has seen and heard. And the Spirit, we're told in chapter 16, will glorify Jesus just as Jesus glorifies the Father and will protect and guide Jesus' disciples as the Lord Jesus did on earth. Now, Jesus is a person and his work with the disciples is a personal work. And the other comforter will be no less than he. And his work no less than personal. The spirit as the other comforter will do a personal work 
in the lives of the disciples. And no thing or force could ever take the place of Jesus in the life of his disciples. No thing or force could be another comforter and fulfil that role. The Spirit is God and is a person. Uh, Now, because the gender of the Greek word for spirit uh, is neuter, that is, it's not masculine, feminine, what we associate with persons, but neuter, and because of those physical metaphors, some people raise objections to speaking of the Holy Spirit as a person. Now, the first objection is based on a complete misunderstanding of the role of grammar. Yes, the spirit, the word for spirit in Greek is neuter, but the word for spirit in Hebrew is feminine. And uh, it's actually a fundamental error to think that grammatical gender tells you anything about, in a sense, whether the thing described in the word, referred to in the word, is a person or not. So, for example, the word for children is neuter. Uh, but I assume you don't treat your children as things uh, based on that misunderstanding in Greek. And uh, we don't think that ships are persons, even though we routinely refer to them as she, at least sailors do. So that's just a fundamental misunderstanding. And those metaphors about the spirit being poured out or the spirit filling actually say nothing about whether the spirit's a person, just as Describing God as a rock doesn't suggest he is impersonal. Those metaphors are a way of talking to convey something of the experience and the effect of the Spirit's coming, like water in the desert, the Spirit's life-giving, or like the waters of baptism, the Spirit's presence is cleansing and purifying. Like a flood or a mighty wind, the spirit can be powerful and overwhelming and also like the wind filling the sails of a sailing boat, the spirit's presence is empowering. And at the same time, those metaphors also remind us what we need to be reminded of is that the spirit is not controlled by us, much more powerful than us. We believers are not dispensers or peddlers of the spirit, as Simon Maduce found to his peril. Those metaphors of power, life-giving power, remind us that the Spirit is sovereign in his work. The Spirit is also an eternal person in relationship with the Father and the Son eternally within God. Now the Spirit is distinct uh, from the Father and the Son, not a form of the Father or the Son, but as we saw in John 14, 26, sent by the Father and the Son to be the other counsellor. And the Spirit's in an other person-centred relationship of love with the Father and the Son eternally. He glorifies the Son, as we saw in chapter 16 of John, as the Father also glorifies the Son in love. And the Spirit does the Father's will in coming and speaking the Father's word, through the prophets, glorifying the Father just as the Son has glorified the Father in willing obedience. The Spirit is himself (coughs) in being sent by the Father and the Son, the bond of mutual love of the Father and the Son for each other. Now that's a really big thought and there is an enormous weight of 
of thinking behind that, uh, but we'll probably leave it for there. If you want to talk about that, come and talk. But that is a way of thinking about the spirit, the bond of love between the Father and the Son and one who is glorified in the glory of their love for each other. Now, the way the Creed speaks of those relationships taking its lead from the revelation of the Spirit and the work of the Sunday's dealings with us is in terms of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. See there in John 15, Jesus said the Spirit proceeds from the Father. (coughs) But whereas that sending of the Spirit to us has a beginning in time when the Lord Jesus ascends to the Father, this is a continuous proceeding, an eternal proceeding within the relationship of the Father, Son and Spirit, which distinguishes the Spirit from the Father and the Son in the one God. And talk of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son affirms what Scripture affirms and is important for us to know. And that is that the Spirit of God is always the Spirit of the Son. And so the relationship he establishes and includes us in with the Father and the Son is an always an eternal relationship. The Spirit is eternally a person and eternally God. Now that was perhaps a bit of hard work, uh, but God, but it's actually important because it actually tells us that God is fully personal, nothing impersonal or mechanistic in the life of God. And that tells us that at the heart of the universe, in not blind mechanistic forces, but one who is fully personal and who has made us persons to relate to him. And not just at the heart of the universe, but at the beginning and the end is one who is fully personal and expresses that in relationships of love. Now, that that tells you at the origin of the universe is love and at the end of all things will be love. And now that is a big thought and it's worth grasping. Anyhow, It also means that our salvation is fully of God. The fact that the Spirit is God and personal tells us that God has committed himself to saving us personally and to saving us completely. You see, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son is one with the Father and the Son in the work of salvation, whose coming gives both the content of that salvation, adoption as God's sons and daughters, as we're spiritually united to Christ by faith, and guarantees the fullness of that salvation. And the scripture repeatedly unites Father, Son and Spirit in our salvation. And I've got just some examples. There are other references in the outline. But so Peter speaks of believers as chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In a sense, believers are defined by their relationship with Father, Son and Spirit. Or in closing to Corinthians, Paul writes, the grace we all know. And grace, love and fellowship are actually all aspects of a believer's relationship with the one God who saves them. And it is the one God, the Son, the Father, the Spirit. 
Oh, it's the Spirit also. Uh, the Lord Jesus and God the Father are all at work in sustaining and providing for God's church. The New Testament repeatedly shows Father, Son and Spirit as one in their work in believers, in saving, sustaining and glorifying them. And so the Spirit deserves to be worshipped with the Father and the Son because he is God, the third person of the Trinity, the one God who saves us. And receiving the Spirit, our experience in believing the gospel is Trinitarian from the beginning, saved by God through Christ in the power of the Spirit. And that experience is then to be reflected in our worship of God the Spirit. But that brings us back to our original question, how? As the creed confesses and scripture confirms the Spirit's God, the third person of the Trinity, but how do we worship the Spirit? And is following the pattern of the New Testament with public prayer and praise directed to God, to the Father, to the Son, somehow inadequate for that task? So how do we worship the Spirit? In John 4, Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So that's the starting point. We cannot worship God without the spirit. Just as we cannot worship without the truth. And Jesus brings both. Only with the new heart the Spirit brings, the Spirit who's given by the Son to his people, can we love the Father and do his will, that is, worship him. Only by embracing the revelation of the truth of God revealed by the Son who speaks the Father's words and does the Father's works, can we honour the Father, that is, can we worship him? God is only worshipped as he wills to be worshipped, where Father, Son and Spirit are known and believed. You cannot worship one without the others. And that's been uh, recognised in a long-standing way. So this is Basil, the 4th century bishop. The Holy Spirit cannot be divided from the Father and the Son in worship. If you remain outside the Spirit, you cannot worship at all. And if you are in him, you cannot separate him from God. The Holy Spirit cannot be separated from our worship of God, as if when we're worshipping the Father and the Son, we are not worshipping the Spirit also. In worshipping the Father and the Son, you are worshipping the Spirit. He is and he must be present for any worship, present as the Spirit of God who is God, sharing in the worship being given to God. And this is the answer to how the Spirit is worshipped. The Spirit is worshipped with the Father and the Son. And that's what the Creed affirms when it says, with the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit is worshipped and glorified. And it's together with the Father and the Son, not alongside or in addition to or apart from. We worship the Spirit together with our worship of the Father and the Son. 
You cannot worship God without worshipping the Spirit. You can't worship the Father or the Son without worshipping the Spirit of God. And to worship one is to worship all three. That such worship is expressed in terms of the worship of God or of the Father or of the Son, as we see in the New Testament, reflects the nature of the relationship of the Spirit to the Son and the Son to the Father reflects the reality of their love. The Spirit, our Lord said in John 16, 14, will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Now, this work of the Spirit, J.I. Packer's called his floodlight ministry. Packer describes seeing a church building he was about to speak in floodlit at night to bring out all its architectural depth and splendour. And he says, when floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. You're meant to see, what you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness and to maximise its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. And this, he says, perfectly illustrates the spirit's role to be the hidden floodlight shining on the Saviour, letting us see the Saviour's beauty and greatness. And so he says the Spirit's message is never look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at him, see his glory, listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life, get to know him, the Lord Jesus, and taste his gift of joy and life. And the Spirit in worship continues to be the floodlight, continues to direct us to the Saviour. And scripture says it's then through the Saviour that in turn we offer our sacrifice of praise to God. So just as in our experience we are saved by God through Christ in the power of the Spirit and we come to the Father through the Son in the Spirit and the Christian life is sharing through the Spirit in the incarnate Son's relationship with the Father, that's why we cry Abba Father, so in worship, our prayers and praise is directed to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. The kind of praise and prayer you see in the New Testament, for the Spirit wills the Son to be glorified and through the Son the Father. The praise and prayer that honours our saving God, Father, Son and Spirit by reflecting the order revealed in the salvation the one God has revealed. And that worship doesn't express a deficiency in our understanding of the Spirit, but a grasp of the Spirit's purpose in being given by the Father to the Son to be poured out by the Son on all who believe in him. But there is a better question for the believer to ask in relation to the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And that is, how do we honour the presence of the Spirit Live as those who know they've been given the Spirit by Christ. Live as those who know that the Spirit of God dwells in them. How is worship of the Spirit caught up in the worship of our whole lives as daughters and sons of God? Worship that the Spirit makes it possible for us to offer to God 
in offering ourselves to him as living sacrifices. Now, we've spoken a little bit about this already when we spoke of the Spirit's work of giving us new hearts that delight to do God's will and the New Testament's call to give ourselves to the life of the Spirit within us to march to the beat of the Spirit's drum as the Spirit transforms our characters into the likeness of the Son. And we'll speak more of it next week about how we honour the Spirit by receiving the Spirit-inspired Word as the Word of God and rejecting other spirits. But what I want to focus on now is honouring the Spirit by glorifying Christ in our lives. For this is the chief work of the Spirit and through the Spirit, in and through the Spirit-given gospel. The Spirit will glorify me, said our Lord, by his coming and equipping the apostles in their witness. And so we honour the Spirit in us by conforming our lives to the Spirit's purpose of glorifying Christ. And in the transcript I said I want to highlight three aspects of this. I'm actually just going to go for the first. Okay, So we firstly and above all honour the Spirit's glorification of our Lord Jesus by confessing (coughs) the truth of the Spirit-given gospel. That's right, by confessing the truth of the Spirit-given gospel. And that's more than saying that Christ died for our sins and rose again. You see, the Spirit in his coming, says our Lord, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. To confess the truth of the gospel is first of all to accept the gospel's verdict on our lives that we are sinners, rebels who ignored our creator, failed to trust him and give him thanks. Now, we can either trivialise sin, you know, eating I'm eating a bit of chocolate, that's a sin, you know, uh, which of course it's not, uh, right? Uh, right? Or, or, or we can limit sin. I haven't murdered anybody. I am not a sinner, right? But look at what the Spirit convicts people of sin in relation to because they have not believed in me, right? Because they do not believe in me. And that is our sin. That is, the word who made the world has come into his world and he finds no welcome. finds no welcome in our hearts. He's excluded from his world. We fault his character. Oh, he, he, he can't be like that. It, he, no, no, what he says is unreal. You, you can't expect me to love my enemies. Or for, oh, you know, we, we reject his teaching. And when he says he is Lord, who can give us life, we say, no, that's just craziness. A sin, because they do not believe in me. Honouring the Spirit's work in glorifying the Son is first of all to say, yes, that's the heart of my sinfulness. I may not have murdered anybody, 
but I have a heart in me which if lest unaddressed would murder the Son of God, right? Because I don't want to listen to him. Oh, I, I, I do all sorts. I'm basically good. No, you are a sinner who does not want Jesus to rule. That's, that's the thing. He convicts of sin. And if you're a believer, you should know that conviction in your life. You're not doing God a favour in believing in his son. He is rescuing you from the judgment you deserve of sin because they do not believe in me. And then secondly, to be to glorify the spirit in glorifying the son, we accept, verse 10, the verdict of God on the life Jesus has on 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 the life of Jesus given in the gospel concerning righteousness because I go to the Father. We accept, we believe that God has raised Jesus who was crucified from the dead and exalted him over all. So we, in glorifying the Son, believe all that he has said. We trust him as the one with all authority. We believe that he can forgive us and we commit our lives into his hands to do what he says, to live according to his word. And yes, thirdly, where we actually glorify the Son, where we honour the Spirit by joining him in glorifying the Son, we are confident, verse 11, of his victory concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has judged. We live confident that the Lord Jesus is the one who has triumphed who has judged and condemned the devil, the great rebel against God's rule once and for all in his death on the cross, who has exposed him as a liar with that lie that says we could be God's and exposed him as powerless in the face of the life and love and truth of God. And so we honour and glorify the Son and so honour the Spirit who glorifies the Son when we proclaim that Jesus rules and he will return, and he will drive all evil and iniquity from his kingdom, and we live looking to that day. We worship the Spirit in our lives by glorifying the Son, by believing the Spirit-born gospel that glorifies the Son. And yes, then having confessed the truth of the spirit gone gospel, we seek Christ's glory by being diligent in our own lives and communities to maintain the truth of the gospel through which the spirit glorifies the Lord Jesus. And yes, we seek to share the gospel that glorifies Christ, share with confidence in the spirit whose goal is the glory of Christ. You know, sometimes we can be hesitant to speak of Jesus because we're afraid we'll be overwhelmed by criticism or caught out lacking answers to people's questions. The Spirit wants Jesus known and honoured as the Saviour of the world and so we shouldn't be anxious that it's all up to us that we'll be left exposed and defenceless as we are faithful to Jesus. We are promised help. Matthew 10, when, you de- when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. 
for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So while it's love to want to deal with difficulties, to prepare yourself by reading books that defend the gospel, don't think you can't speak about what you know until you've got all the answers. Can't think about the Lord Jesus and his saving you until you've mastered all the defences. Be confident in the spirit who wants to glorify Christ and speak of what you know and have experienced. You can always say, oh, that's a good point, I hadn't thought about it, let it come back to you. But hopefully the stability of our faith doesn't rest in the confidence we have in our intellectual arguments, but in a spirit-given conviction of the truth of the gospel. We honour the spirit who glorifies Jesus by confessing the truth of the gospel, maintaining the truth of the gospel and sharing the gospel through which the spirit glorifies the son. We honour the spirit. We give our God, Father, Son and Spirit, the worship he deserves in our whole lives by giving ourselves to the Spirit's mission of glorifying Christ in our lives and in our community and sharing the Spirit's goal that Christ be glorified, seen for who he is, the eternal Son, entrusted with all that is the Father's glorified through the gospel that proclaims him Lord. And in our gatherings, we worship the Spirit together with the Father and the Son by giving prayer and praise to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit and receiving the Spirit-breathed Word read and taught in our midst as the Word of God. But more of that next week uh, when we think about he has spoken through the prophets. The relation of the Word of the Spirit to the Word the Spirit speaks in the final sermon on this part of the Creed. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. Let's give ourselves to that worship by praising, praising the Father through the Son. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit and your revelation of yourself, the one God, Father, Son and Spirit, through the work of the Son and the Spirit for us and in us. We thank you that you have shown yourself to be glorious, a God of love and truth, of justice and righteousness. And we thank you for the commitment you have given us in giving us the spirit of your son to adopt us as your children and to bring us to the fullness of that adoption in our resurrection. Our Father, we pray that we would give ourselves to the spirit's work in us and especially honour the spirit by sharing his desire that the Lord Jesus be glorified in the truth about him being known. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.